welcome to the Adventures in Growth podcast, where we share the stories of exceptional founders and leaders in startups and tech. We dive into the secrets to their success, operating a game-changing tech companies, and we share their playbooks of how they've built their careers, led outstanding teams, and designed the life they want. Subscribe to this podcast newsletter at adventuresingrowth.co to receive exclusive weekly insights to supercharge your professional and personal growth. This week, we're speaking with entrepreneur and advisor Kelsey Recht. Kelsey is the founder and former CEO of VenueBook, the startup she successfully exited. In keeping with the spirit of adventures and growth, Kelsey charted her course to tech leadership via a non-traditional route, working in finance before studying for her MBA at the Kellogg School of Management, and then founding her first startup, VenueBook. She's currently searching for her next venture, but this time is looking to buy an existing business rather than starting from scratch. In this episode, we discuss the founder as a sales role, collecting useful customer feedback, and what to look for in hiring early stage employees. We'll take a deep dive on Kelsey's secrets to success for leading business development with best-in-class networking and relationship building. Welcome to Adventures in Growth. Kelsey Recht, welcome to the Adventures in Growth podcast. We're excited to have you on. Well, thanks for having me. We've got a really exciting conversation lined up today. We're going to talk to you a little bit about specifically sales and networking. But before we dive into that, tell us, what are you up to these days? So right now, I am out there looking for a small business to buy, run, and scale, and then ultimately exit. I love the tech world. I continue to advise tech companies, but I was looking for sort of a my next entrepreneurial thing that was a bit different than maybe what I've been doing before. My husband keeps like joking that I'm going to be like the the, the like residential trash services like queen of Westchester County or something like that. So stay tuned for what company I go out to eventually buy. Yeah, that's exciting stuff. Well, you know, you've got to be queen of your own domain, but you've been an entrepreneur for a long time. And obviously now, as you mentioned, you're kind of looking for a different flavor of that. But what do you enjoy most about being a founder? What are the things that have really kind of excited you through that journey? Great question. So first off, I think once you've worked for yourself, it's hard to go back any other way. And it's both more frustrating, but also more invigorating. And even though prior to being the founder of VenueBook, I worked in more finance, M&A type roles. Both of those roles were entrepreneurial. So even since like right out of college, I was given a lot of freedom and flexibility and sort of like the ability to grow as quickly as I could. And I think one of the reasons why once you've been out on your own, it's hard to go back is that I really believe people rise to the level of responsibility that's given to them overall. And so if you take on really hard challenges, they may seem very difficult when you start, but as you break them down, you're going to develop so much faster and so much more than if you're in more of a constrained, like put my foot right in front of my other foot every day type of role. And so once you get used to that, even though there's more stress, there's more pressure at times, I think it's sort of what like invigorates you and gets you out of bed. My husband might also say I'm unemployable by anybody else, right? So like nobody else could tolerate me, but we won't go down that rabbit hole today. <laughs> It's true, though. It's a very addictive thing, isn't it, where you do have the latitude to challenge yourself across a range of dimensions. But today, we're going to focus on sales and networking. And I'd love to ask you, what experience did you have 
that changed your perception of the importance of sales and networking? Or was there something transformative that, that has led you to this point where you really emphasize this as being a critical skill that you have to develop? Yeah, that's a great question. So first off, prior venue book was really the experience that made me realize how important that was in all areas of just like your career and life. And I know that people think of sales and networking as sort of, I hate to say the dirty words, like this sort of like networking. It's like, I'm asking for something that, you know, I'm trying to sell you a product that's not going to do you any good if I'm trying to sell you. But venue book was my transformative experience. However, if I think back like to my career prior to that, like I, I had a lot of that inclination already for it overall. Like even when I was at Fidelity Investments as a stock research analyst, I mean, there are billions of trillions of dollars that we had under management. And so, you know, get, I had to actually go in and pitch the portfolio managers on why they should be buying my stocks. Because in the end, I could put my own recommendations on these things, but I never made Fidelity any money if I less, unless I convinced people to actually buy my stocks overall. My only complaint about that is that I covered an industry that should have been shorted, but I was at a long only shop and I was covering those stocks, but I also was there to sell them on why they should get out of them because they had already kind of run its course. And so Venue Book was really the transformative experience, but there was a lot, I think, in my life where I sort of was maybe a bit naturally predisposed to it. So I maybe naturally was okay doing some of those things, but what became very clear when I started running Venue Book is that it, like, it was such the key to success in all areas. It was selling investors. It was selling employees. It was selling first customers. It was, it was trying to find and build a network when you don't have a brand and people aren't calling you. I mean, like, I did a EIR stint for Capital One Ventures. It was a wonderful experience. And I had worked at Fidelity Investments and I forgot how awesome it was when people just called you because you had a big name at your company and they wanted to pitch you on something. But that like doesn't happen when you're the small guy on the block. Like you have to, or girl, you have to like go out and get somebody first off to take your meeting, to take your call, to do all of that. And so it sort of becomes second nature. And I think where sales and networking gets a bad wrap is that you can't go in always being transactional. You have to go in with like a truly curious mind. Like what does this customer really need? What does this employee really want out of their next job? You know, what, what does this person who's, you know, been the CEO of this bigger company who has really applicable technology lessons, what can they tell me? Because people can feel that sort of like genuine curiosity and it becomes, you're going to have to talk to like to get your first customer, you're probably gonna have to talk to a hundred, you know, it's sort of like how everybody likes to say, I talked to a hundred VCs and like you know, 101 gave me money, for example, or 99 and then 100 gave me money is that you have to go in and realize that you're like going for like, what can I get out of this just as a advice and conversation? Because all of that information is valuable and people can feel that. From you, because if you're going in and you're trying to sell a customer and you don't have the right product for them, that's super valuable information in and of itself, rather than just going in and saying like, here's my product, here's my product, take it. Because yeah, you can only like strong arm so many customers. People need to love what you're doing. So it's, it's really interesting. You mentioned that because I think there's different pieces to what you're talking about. So some of that is actually customer discovery, right? It's actually understanding your market, but how to that end, how did you 
what did you find worked well for you as a founder? And what did you do as a founder when you were managing that sales process? How did that evolve from day one through to day 100? It's a good question. So the very first half, I think always as a founder, you always have to be your first salesperson at the company because the company and the idea is so much intimately yours. You need that really direct feedback. And even as you get a bit bigger, you should still be taking customer service calls. You should still be talking to customers. You can't do that every day, but you need to still be close to it. But the reason you need to be that first salesperson is you also need to know sort of what is the skill set I'm looking to fill, fill this job. And for example, one of the things that I learned through some good sales hires, some bad sales hires, and a founder naturally exists, is that you need to have evangelists in the early days of companies overall. So they, you actually do better sometimes getting a scrappier, slightly younger, not as polished or pedigreed salesperson that might have something that they need to prove. Because somebody who has a lot of pedigree, has a reputation, you know, doesn't want to hurt that reputation in the industry. You know, I like to call them wave riders versus wave makers really simply. I think when people hear that, they sort of are like, they can think about people in their life who are wave riders and there are excellent wave riders overall, but then there are people who are amazing wave makers and like they are the ones that are like out there getting the ball rolling. Sometimes, you know, they're not the best as a wave rider, but those are the types of people that you really need. And by being that first salesperson for Venue Book, I had I learned like you're kind of selling something unproven, so you need to truly be an evangelist. If you're a bit uncomfortable selling something unproven, you're just going to crash and burn overall. Because like I can't give you any proof data until we have hundreds and hundreds of customers, and it's your job to get those hundreds of customers because you believe so much in the product and how it's going to change the world. You mentioned a couple of things there in terms of what you look for. What are those characteristics you think are critical for that first sales hire at an early stage startup? Well, first off, I mean, a self-starter, somebody who is has sales training. So they have, you know, they understand the art of a pitch, the art of a demo. They do not necessarily need to have industry experience. That depends a bit on whatever product they're selling. Obviously, if you're selling a very technical enterprise product, you need to have some industry experience. But if you're selling more of a consumer-type product that most can understand, obviously, you just need maybe general sales training. They also need to like be that person who can take 99 no's for the like that first yes and glorify in that first yes and not be so discouraged by the 99 but be like wow we got a yes type of thing it's all sort of a it's a little bit like glasses half full the glasses half empty overall and it's usually somebody that fits that profile is not somebody who's managed like 100 200 person sales team there's somebody who's ambitious smart growth mindset that kind of wants to go out and prove themselves and they're not afraid to take a little bit of a risk. How through your process when you were hiring, did you identify those capabilities? Because it's one thing, you know, when you interview someone and you look at them on paper, but it's another thing when you actually see them in action, like how did you manage those hires? And like, what did you learn through that process of guessing a little bit of trial and error to get to that point? Like, what would you, what did you, what would you do differently given what you know now? So first off, I, Full disclosure, I actually think really finding people with a growth mindset is one of the hardest things to screen for in interviews. 
I actually find that I try to look for it more in how their career has progressed or what their trajectory has been overall. And the reason I say that is that, like, I'll give you like an example of two different resumes. So let's say you have a resume of somebody who has been, has been like a director of sales at like multiple companies, but for short stints overall. And maybe they move up a little bit in title. I would view that person as probably not having a growth mindset because if you're at an amazing growth company and you're doing really well, you're getting moved up, you're getting moved up, you're getting moved up, you're getting moved up. It's the people like that have been at a startup and like every six months they have a new job and it's a job with a higher title. Because what that means is like they're pacing and they're developing so quickly within the organization, it's worthwhile. So even in going back to sort of that looking for the right type of profile, you know, sometimes you might be like, oh, well, they were at this company, they were at this company. Those are all such great experiences. But if they don't have that leveling up experience within them, then I think that's, that is something that like is actually a red flag overall, as I would see. That doesn't mean though, that people that are within corporate can't have that. I just try to probe on other things like what did you study in college? What kind of like, what did you do? To, like, how did you get a job? Like, were you out there like cold calling a hundred people type of thing? Like I probe on other things that don't show up on resumes generally, you know, also with sales hires, it's amazing how much sometimes, so salespeople are hard because they know how, if they know how to pitch, sometimes they know how to sell you on why they're good. But sometimes I would put something like, I would just put them on the spot and I'd be like, sell me this iPhone sell me this piece of paper, sell me this like this cup of water. Why should I be using a plastic cup versus a glass cup type of thing? Something that they weren't prepared for and they had to kind of think on their feet because naturally you're going, when you're selling a new product, you're going to get objections. And especially in the early days, you're not going to be ready for every objection. So you need to be able to be like, oh, here's what I think. Here's what I think. Like anybody can memorize a pitch. But not everybody can respond to the environment as it comes at them overall. How did Andy, when you've worked at Uber to that end, how much interaction did you have with sales? Did you were you responsible for the sales organization, or did that fall under a different arm? Because I know you as a G, as a GM, I'd expect you had some input. Yeah, into that. well, typically, typically it was a B to C sale on both ends for individual riders and drivers in the early days. There was some, I would say, I would call it more business development stuff that our partnerships did. You know, influencers and you know, sports partnerships and things like that were were part of it. Yeah, but I agree with Kelsey that. A lot of the interesting questions that we'd ask in an interview would be, you know, think on your feet, you know, tell me about your favorite artist. Okay. How would you, how would you leverage that in a marketing partnership, for example? Right. So something you couldn't prepare for, but give me an idea of particularly early days, right? How, what's your hustle like? So how about you, Dan? Good questions you like to ask. Yes, please share. Interviewing is the hardest thing out there. Yeah. It's a great question. Cause I mean, I've, to that point, I've not been in a position where I've had to hire a salesperson. I've done the sales myself as the founder. And it, I never, and we got to the scale where we were in a position to hire that salesperson. So I was responsible for developing relationships. But to your point, Kelsey, is like for me, that was invaluable from a customer discovery point of view, because you understand what the product requirements are and what the customer needs are. But 
yeah, I'm learning from listening to you both about how to manage that hiring process. It's good to hear. Well, and I think part of the thesis for this podcast, Kelsey, we've talked about this is I think sharing for a lot of people that we know in, in common who've come from school, professional services and things like that, and are considering getting into tech. And it feels like a lot of people with say a name brand college or business school on their resume, it feels like, and you know, I certainly saw this different stops in my career, but like smart people who went to good schools are, you know, often prefer being right slowly than being wrong quickly. And I wonder if that, that, that kind of leads into kind of the right mindset for kind of a, the startup entrepreneurial pathway. Yes. Well, Andy, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, I think to the whole hiring process, hiring is difficult. And one of my comments from there was going to be to your, to being wrong quickly is that you also, like, if you are wrong on a hire or you are wrong on a customer or you're on a product thing, like you need to make a decision quickly. Like you, you know, within three months, whether somebody's going to work out, it's like something about that three months, sometimes even within three weeks. And, you know, it's always, it's never good to like make a bad hire or bring on a customer that's like too demanding or taking up too much time. But like, it's even worse to have them linger around for too long because you know you don't if you make a bad hire in corporate it can kind of it's like if a tree falls in the forest did it even fall but like if a tree falls in your front yard when you're a startup you're like wow they're they're like that tree almost hit my house type of thing overall and so you just you have to move a little bit faster with those things too oh I won't say which previous employer, but me and colleagues used to joke, how long do you think you might be able to disappear for before they would notice you weren't there? <laughs> and there was a VP who kind of performed that trick. He joined and init you know, initially have his weekly check-ins and then they became bi-weekly and then they became monthly and then slowly just slowly disappeared, but was still technically employed. I don't know quite what happened to him. But it's very true. And there's that old adage of hire slowly, fire fast. But I do think to your original point, even if you hire slowly, you've got to understand who you're hiring for. And I think there's a lot of importance att attached to title and brand name at early stage startups. When, as you say, what's more important is personality type and that willingness to get their hands dirty or challenge themselves when they need to be a little bit scrappy. And I think that's an important lesson for anyone who thinks about getting into early stage startups. It's a different skill set than going into brand name corporate where a lot of it is already pathed out for you. Mm -hmm. And I have friends who, I mean, first off, I mean, once you've been in it, if you love it, but I also have friends who went corporate, went to early stage and were like, whoa, this is not for me and went back to corporate. And I also think that's healthy. Yeah. Generally, you know, I think entrepreneurs go entrepreneurial, go corporate, and then they jump back out. So it's which way are you going? Generally, you, and it's you, that self-awareness that's really important, especially a little bit more, I think, at early stage companies. You, you mentioned something previously that you said, you know, you've been talking to a lot of friends and acquaintances about the tech scene today and actually advising a lot of those existing corporate employees against going into technology. Can you expand on that a little bit more and tell us why you've been doing that? So first off, for some reason where we live in Westchester, I become like the tech whisperer, maybe because there is there aren't that many other people in tech overall. And first off, I am always happy for people to go into tech. But one of the reasons why I was advising against tech is that I was I think 
like early stage in tech, it's, it feels sexy. It feels fun. But like, if you haven't been in it, you don't realize like they say that one year at a startup is like dog years and all you guys know exactly what I mean, but corporate people don't quite understand what that means. So a lot of my advice to people was, Hey, this sounds really interesting, but like, why don't you like dig under the hood a little bit more? You have to do your diligence in the same way, but you have to think about different things overall. Your diligence on taking a position at Goldman Sachs is different than your diligence of taking a position at like an emerging company overall. I would, I mean, I shouldn't, maybe this joke is too early. Like as maybe a month ago, you might not have been doing your financial, like wherewithal diligence on any large banks. Now you are. But like, that's, for example, a huge part, I think, of going to an early stage startup. And especially if people are cagey about that, I think in the early days, I think then that can be a red flag overall, because I mean, it's great if it's an amazing concept, but if they're going to run out of money in three months, like what is the plan to go get more capital into the business over the next three months? Are there any other specific questions you coach your advisees to ask because they're doing diligences on on startups maybe for the first time that they wouldn't have thought to coming from a larger environment? That's a really good question. First off, I mean, always ask how much, what is runway overall? What do we need to believe to be able to, like what needs to happen for that to be runway? Can revenue stay where it is? Does it need to go up? Do expenses need to go down? What is your plan for the next raise? What, like, where are you going over the next year? Where are you going over the next five years? Where, like, what keeps you up at night? That's actually one of my favorite questions. The reason is that it's usually the one where, like, someone will be like, oh, this is exactly what it is. And that usually gets to the root of one of the biggest pains of the business. And if you're going to go think about whether you want to work for that business, you have to believe that business can solve it or get around it. And then obviously a lot on who's on the team and how will I fit into the team? Less about title and all of that. And then all of that then feeds into, will help you understand what's my equity worth, like what percentage, all of that, because it's great to get 10% of a company, but if the company is going to run out of money in three months or vice versa, like it's you're going to get 0.5 of company who's going to grow a thousand percent over the next year. That's really interesting. And so I think it kind of informs instead of just doing the superficial of what's my equity, what's my cash, like what is actually going to lead the company to success is a lot more important generally. How do you leverage network when you're trying to make these types of decisions as well? So have you been, have you found it helpful when you're trying to sort of, you know, whether it be about joining a company or, assessing a candidate like how have you leveraged that that sort of network or what approach have you taken to leveraging your network if you can i'm a big believer in back channel references anybody you can find that may have worked with this person or known somebody that worked with them every everybody will give you great references always on somebody and actually if somebody's reference isn't First off, I always expect references to be positive, but then I also believe references where they give some true feedback always more because I think they know that they need to give a credible reference, but back channel, number one. And then second, I actually spend more time with the references on if you, what advice would you give to me on how to manage this person? What motivates them? Like, how did you get the best work out of them? 
So the, the stuff that's a bit more intangible that you can't, that you can't maybe get out of an interview. And then also sometimes what you get out of that is, is like, Andy, your question where you like, you're asking somebody that they're not prepared for. People aren't prepared to answer that in a reference. So sometimes you get insight into whether that person is a good cultural fit overall. Like that person could say, oh, this person is great. They churn through work really quickly. I give them all of the details on exactly what they're going to do, give them a deadline, and they're amazing at like putting out a finished product. However, I would see that as somewhat, oh, interesting. Are they going to be enough of a self-starter for this environment? Are they going to, are they going to like, are they going to ask for everything on a civil platter? Because, you know, I can't. Like, for example, I'm hiring some interns right now to help me with, to help me with my search for a small business to buy. And I've had to think through, like, what do they need to be good at? Like, do they, and actually one of the things I realized is like, they need to be really good at like just figuring out how to find information with absolutely no guidance. Like, and smart people aren't always good at that because smart people are used to being like, here's your test, fill it out. Uh, so I, I actually gave them a lot of really experiential work when it came to some of the screening, generally to try to suss that stuff out. Ask me in a couple of months how some of that screening worked out. But I'm trying to like get to the bottom of different skill sets in a different way. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But you to take the, take a step back, you've talked about the importance of networking generally. Tell us like how you think about that and why do you think it's so important and, and, and earn that? Well, first off, isn't it the rule that you find, you don't find, you never find new jobs via your like first degree network. You find them via your second and third degree network overall. What that means is that generally you should always cultivate a broad network and you cultivate a broad network in a way where you never quite know how it's going to come back to you. And like, you also think a lot about how do you provide value to people long, long before sort of like you, you may need anything from them overall. Like I'm always that, I'm always that person in all areas of life, business or personal that I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. You're working on that. I think you should go talk to this person type of thing overall. So I'm always a person who's like offering up, maybe you should go talk to these people. Maybe you should. And that's part of like, it's, it's unrelated to networking, but have you ever heard the term conversational work? Okay. So this is, this will give you like an analogy for this because everybody has experienced this. So you're having a conversation with somebody and like you're speaking to them and you ask them a bunch of questions and they answer back and it seems like it's going well, but then you're like, gotta keep coming up with questions or keep coming up with questions or you start trying to like bring up new topics or something to keep it going. So that's a lot of conversational work. So the people that like people love to talk to you, think about that person who talked to you, when you ask them, them some other, some questions and they start saying, oh, interesting. You said you're from Minnesota. Oh, I went to Minnesota at this time. And like, what do you think about Minnesota? And then I'm like, oh, that's so interesting. How have you lived in Chicago? It's more of like a give and a take. Like you guys, I don't know if you like, can, you can all probably think of conversations that you had with those types of people versus the type of people where you're like, you feel like you're pulling information or then 
you just start talking to like fill the void because it's not a bit more of that back and forth. That's how networking always should be. And there will always be people who are higher up than you that probably have more to give back, but trying to think about how you can like provide value in any way is always like interesting, you know, like it's funny, you know, like I would think now, like I'll give you like an interesting, like if you're talking to somebody much older than you, that they might have a kid who's like ready to get into college and being like, oh, they might, they want to go to this school. Oh, I know somebody who was just there, like their kid is there. Do they want to go talk to them? Like you just have to be a little bit more outside the box thinking about like how you create more of a give and take in terms of networking, because it also feels better generally. And also I think people can feel that you are just generally interested in their advice and their view. And you're also generally interested in trying to like help them out without agenda overall. And like, even now in my search for a small business, sometimes I go into the business and I'm like, here's kind of what I would do with your business. Like if you want to go do that yourself, that's totally fine with me. But like, that's also why you might want to work with me. If this resonates with you, this might be something you want to do, but like, do, but, or if, or if you're like, wow, I hate this, like then, Hey, maybe we're not good partners type of thing. It's fascinating because you, now you are on that path of trying to buy a business. How have you applied those networking skills you've developed as a founder? Like, what are you doing to find those businesses and then actually initiate contact with business owners? Cause to me, that sounds, that it's a lot of, it's not a natural thing for most people to be able to do, but I think this is something that comes quite naturally to you. What are you finding is successful as you're, you're conducting that networking and outreach effort? That's a good question. So first off, you know, some people like technically I'm doing like a self-funded search. That's what they would be called. So some search funders love to call like 10,000 companies overall. And I am not averse to cold calling. I'm very happy to cold call. I did a lot of it at Venue Book. I'm cold emails, cold networking, anything. However, to your point around networking, I believe in sort of like a mix of high volume with like targeted knowledge and networking. So one of the things I've done is sort of identify general thesis areas by combing through a lot of companies, you know, maybe talking to a bunch of people in the industry. And then I have tried to go out and go get people who are like experts in that industry and been like, Hey, can I have just 30 minutes of advice? What do you think? Like, am I thinking about this in the right way? And then you always ask like, who else should I talk to? Because what you start to like peel back, like the onion is like, wow, okay, you got this, you have this. And then it kind of expands from there. And I always like, to, I was telling one of the interns that I was, that I'm potentially thinking about bringing on, I was telling them yesterday, I was like, you can spend as much time on Google as you want. Like you want to Google, but like you call up somebody who's been in and get somebody on the phone who's been in an industry for 30 years and go in like generally curious about that industry. Like you are going to get more information in 30 minutes than like you could like all day on Google. And yes, you may have to edit that. There may have been things that have changed, but it's like, kind of trying to think about how you get a network to cascade is a little bit about how I do it overall. Cause people do generally like to help if you seem like reasonable and like pretty laid back. That, that type of call though, to me is the perfect case study of like, how do you engage that person who is the industry veteran and you're phoning them up to say, Hey, either I want to buy your business or I want to learn about your business or industry. Like how do you manage that? Cause I think that is intimidating for a lot of people to do. Like what have you found successful? doing those types of calls and outreach? It's a good question. So first off, 
you know, obviously later in your career, you start to have a stronger network. People are more senior. You have more of those people. But first off, to the point that a network cascades, the more you try to like be active in terms of like meeting a lot of new people and talking to a lot of different perspectives, like it just grows faster, even if you're young. However, if you really have no connection and you have no introduction, I think really targeted, but very clear emails or LinkedIn's. I actually find LinkedIn is a really good way now, especially if you're not just spamming somebody, you're going in with like a really, like I won't name the company, but I just got a founder of a company to get on the phone with me. And I sent her a super direct LinkedIn. And I said, Hey, here's exactly what I want to learn. Here's where I've experienced your business. I love this business. Like I, can you just I'd love to talk about these two things with you type of thing. And she's like, sure, I'm happy. Versus like, if you reach out and you're like, hey, I just would love to talk to you. They're like, okay, why am I speaking to you? What kind of time? Is this worth it? Or if you're like, here's exactly what I want to talk to you about. They're like, oh, okay, I can definitely do that. That seems like something we could cover in 30 minutes. It's like- Every founder I know has all sorts of extra time to spend with someone who might burn an hour of their time with a waste with of time. questions. With no conversational work happening just like all one way, right? But it's also, it's kind of like even just the psychology of, okay, if somebody is busy and you're like, hey, can you talk Thursday versus, hey, can you talk Thursday at 1.30 p.m. about this specific topic? You're like, yes, I definitely can squeeze 15 minutes in to talk to you about that specific topic. It's something like, I think it's a psychological thing. It's in all of our brains. I mean, I know I even do that. If you ask me for like a, hey, when can you speak next week versus can you speak at this time, you get a better response. It's fascinating. But what? how did you apply those lessons to VenueBook? So how, I think you've, you grew VenueBook to thousands of venues across the country, right? How did you manage that scaling process? And what lessons did you take from that through the sales and networking? It's a good question. So first off, I was always, you know, part of what a founder, like obviously you need to be the one in the early days doing, you know, like you're working on the product. I mean, I did our QuickBooks in the early days, but eventually as the company grows, you go into more like higher level things. But I was always sort of building a network a couple steps ahead of where we were going. So for example, we wanted to expand into hotels. We had a lot of hotels that were coming to us that were really interested in partnering with us, but there was, there was a little bit of a software connectivity issue. So we didn't have anything built yet, but I went out there, for example, to your point, how does it evolve? Starting to go and connect with hotel people, trying to start doing that hands-on research and informing it. And then what starts to happen is you build that relationship over time and then they become early partners because you don't come into them just ready to sell a product. You come in where they've kind of come along your journey. It's the whole idea that investors love lines, not dots. Like partners and customers also love that. And so there's no way sometimes to develop products. Be developing it long before you need it overall. But that also can inform how you might develop the company generally. But I also, I always found like that's the way I found the best employees. That's the way I found the best customers. That's how we got into some of the top venues. You know, you always have to, yes, there is a chance for cold calling, but it's sort of like luck favors the prepared mind. Like getting a hard to close person also favors 
you might cold call them, but you also might be like, oh, but we also know this person type of thing. Like you got to sort of be ready, try to kind of pull that all together for the people that are hard customers, hard employees to get, hard investors to get everything. And that's where I like to think like, as I said, truth favors, luck favors the prepared mind. Yes, is there some luck in life? But I think people put themselves in the right place to be lucky a lot of times overall. With Venue Book, you were effectively creating a category, right? It was like, in, this is context, five, sort of five to 10 years ago at a time when there was no online booking for a lot of these venues. And to what extent do you think, therefore, your approach to sales is slightly different because you're engaging both in discovery and education versus a company that's already got product in market in an established category. Do you think there's a big difference between those two things or are there principles that are common when selling an early stage new category versus an existing product? It's a great question. So first off, I always think in either of those products, it is. So at VenueBook, we used a sales method called the challenger sales method. So I hate to Challenger initially comes off as like, oh, you're argumentative type of thing, but that's not really what you're trying to do. Challenger is more of like, it's sort of like the Socratic method of trying to sell. Like, what are your needs? What are your pain points? Are you doing it in the right way? I personally think whether you're in a step, you absolutely have to sell in that way as a new age product overall, because you need to push the envelope. But that's also really important at knowing how even with a more established product, how you're going to close somebody because you might have a hundred features in your product, but you know, one customer, 20 are the most valuable. Another customer, like 50, that 50 through 70th feature that you added were the most valuable. And if you go in with a blanket feature dump, not actually going to pinpoint exactly why that person may say yes to your product. And so, yes, can you sell a little bit more on features? Do you have to educate a bit less as you have a more established product by all means? But I also still believe in like a deep discovery challenger type methodology when it comes to selling products, because it's so much easier to close somebody if you know, if they're like, oh, We've got this. So we eventually started selling against more competitors because there were more software solutions in the market. And we were like, well, I just don't like, it's so, it's such a pain that like every, they can't e-sign the document and then they have to send me back the piece of paper, you know? And like, honestly, part of me was like, what? Like, I mean, the rest of the world is used to DocuSign. This is not the most groundbreaking technical feature of our product, but if, if that is what you are dying for, that is what I'm going to pitch you hard, but you know, without asking the question, you just never know whether it's an established or not. I really love your approach to, you know, understanding the customer and what motivates them in terms of, you know, your approach to selling. I'd imagine there's kind of a middle ground between taking their point of view seriously and taking it too seriously. You know, there's the overused example that no one told Steve Jobs, I want an iPhone before the iPhone. How do you think about balancing, you know, what you internalize versus what you disregard when you're talking to a prospective customer, prospective hire, or, you know, anyone who may not, you know, fully understand, you know, your vision, the future that you're bringing? It's an excellent question. It's funny, I used that analogy of faster horse last night, so I agree with you. First off, I think you need to take feedback, but you need to start to also be good at editing feedback. And that sometimes just takes time. It's just like sort of like it takes time to learn how to read investors 
it takes time to learn how to read people like customers back. But one of the things that I think to that point on, especially on product and sort of early processes, the more you can focus on the pain points and the problems versus like actual solutions, I think that's where you start to learn how to edit. Because if you focus too much on solutions, that's when you get people that are asking you not for an iPhone, they're asking you for a better iPod overall. But if they're starting to say, well, it's such a pain, like, you know, it's the classic, like, well, when I have my iPod and have my weird, what was it? The razor phone. I never had a razor phone. My phone was like, I was never that cool. Sonny Erickson in my case. Right. So I never had one of those. You had your razor phone, you had your iPad, pod. As I went to an iPad, you know, but it's to your point, Andy, if you focus on the pain points, you start to see the opportunity for an iPhone rather than somebody, well, my Apple watch is talking to me right now here, (laughs) right? It is maybe listening to you. That's all you need to know. Trying to get those next generation (laughs) insights from these. Exactly. This is now how Apple is getting their insights, but it's like that underlying pain point. It's like, I always like to, for example, I like to ask people always, if you were to wave a magic wand, like what would you make easier in your life type of thing? What would it be generally? And what they'll often do is focus on things that are like bugging them in the pain versus like, ah, this, because people don't suggest the right thing. So you just have to frame the question a little bit versus like, would you buy this product? Like, cause if somebody had like told you, you know, what is the, it's a great, and it's your point, the Steve Jobs presentation where he puts up like, I'm going to sell you an iPod, a phone and something else, like whatever. And he brings them together and you're like, I don't want all those type of thing. And that's like the whole thing of like, how do you get under the hood just that much, that much more. And even what's your favorite answer to that question, that magic wand question that you've heard? It's a good question. Okay, I'm going to answer that question slightly differently, but I think it's important. I think the most interesting question, sometimes when you ask that, I, I ask it of companies that I advise. I ask it of like comp- like the companies now that I'm interested in potentially buying. Sometimes people like have no idea, like they don't have answers to it. And I know that sounds strange, but that's also where people are looking for you to guide them. And it also gives you a sense of whether they like actually really know what they want as an employee, as a customer, as like a business owner that wants to exit. And so my initial gut reaction was, man, I can't think of my favorite one, but it's kind of funny. Sometimes it's a valuable question because you get a lot of valuable feedback on that maybe people aren't clear enough about what their focus is and what's important to them. Sometimes you get a lot of amazing stuff, but it's interesting how sometimes it's a bit more of a, which is also why I asked the question, because it's kind of telling in the way people answer it. And it probably sets the mood and the, the tenor of the discussion for let's have a more interesting talk about innovation. So I'm probably going to wake up in the middle of the night and be like, that was my favorite magic wand. <laughs> right? I want a rocket that's going to Mars or something, and it's getting me there in a month. <laughs> Record that with Siri and you can share that with us later. But it's funny because I think the thing you mentioned there, which is important, is the reaction, isn't it? Because if you get that strong reaction, because if someone's just like, oh, you know, this thing's, it's fine. That 
sort of mediocre response tells you the pain point isn't big enough. But if you get a really strong reaction to something and they kind of throw their arms up metaphorically or physically, that tells you where to focus. And that's the point, isn't it? Of that open-ended question. But I also think that's the point of what you're talking about in terms of sales and networking. So even with discovery, having that conversation where you open up someone's willingness to share with you is really important because they'll give you an honest answer about something that they care about and the stuff they don't care about is like, it's neither here nor there. And that's the thing you're looking for, isn't it? As an early stage company or product manager or someone who is marketing, it's like, what are those pain points that are worth solving for? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Did you find through this process, you know, you've mentioned, obviously you've learned about the importance of sales and networking. Did you find there were any conventions or myths that were exploded through your experience, either as a founder or, you know, now as an advisor and someone who's looking to buy a business? Usually I find when I advise or looking at companies, first off, it's in the early days, it's get some money in the bank, get the right people on board. but one of the things that's interesting to me about pitch decks is people always sort of gloss over go to market like, Oh, we're going to have an inside sales team overall. And the reason I bring that up is that I think in a lot of areas that I work with startups is I tend to beat them up a lot on their go to market because in the end companies often fail because they don't have enough customers overall, or like the business that I'm looking at, they might have customers, but they're spending too much time, too much money to acquire them, or they're not keeping them or overall. And so that's actually where I find I try to spend the most time. And I'd be the first to say like, we did not do everything right at venue book. And, you know, we, I had to, there's times that we had to change the way we were going to market, but also like we Right, because we changed the way we went to market. We weren't willing to just say like, okay, this had worked for three years. We're not going to change anything. We're like, oh, this has worked for three years. There are th things that are different in the market. Now we need to do it this way type of thing. And so I think that's something that like a truly amazing go-to-market strategy and trying a bunch of things can really like can really can change a business trajectory dramatically overall. Like for example, one of my theses in terms of going and out and buying a company is that there's all these locations that are all overall, but I have this thesis that any business that is more mobile and comes to you, where that's been an interesting category, generally like the New York cities of the world, the San Francisco, you're in the car, you know, that is just a trend that's going to hit the rest of the country overall. And so like going back to this go to market, like, Sometimes if you're in a world where you like have more of an innovative go-to-market and you have a type of go-to-market or a type of offering that's different than what's out there, like you can grow really quickly, generally. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's, I think it's such an important facet, isn't it, that we certainly didn't solve for, but I also think gets overlooked in terms of distribution being absolutely the most critical thing for any business, right? And you're seeing this a little bit now with AI, and even though Google may be behind, it has the inherent advantage of massive distribution and scale. But I think also the other piece to that is tailoring your product to that distribution strategy. And that's something we didn't solve for where we were kind of initially for speed to market focused on direct to consumer, but that was totally misaligned with what benefits brokers wanted and the uh, potential partners who would have got us to scale. So you kind of, you've got to think about how those two are married together. And we didn't do a good job of that at my startup. I think brokers don't like being disintermediated. 
Well, but benefits brokers, they, you know, you look at their incentive structure, right? And we didn't provide enough incentive for them to want to put our product into users' hands. And it's, and that's the, you know, that's the thing you've got to understand when you're going to market. It's like who, who will want to sell this product for you and why, or who will want to use it and why. And I think that's the challenge a lot of startups don't solve for. Yes. And you know what? Behavior change is hard to that point. I mean, I, full disclosure, if I were to start another company, I would probably start a company that has more minimal behavior change. I mean, Andy, think about Uber. Uber was, there was some behavior change, but in the end, you're, you were used to taking a taxi. You were used to taking a black car. What they did was wrap a, was 10 times more amazing technology around it. Whereas like if you were the business that was like, hey guys, don't get in your car and drive to the airport, you should get in a black car. That would have been a much harder business generally. So I also am like anything that requires a little bit less behavior change, because even all of us, like everybody knows they need to go to the gym or everybody knows they need to eat healthier. Like how many of us are actually doing that overall? It's sort of like that kind of stuff is hard to get people to do. Yeah. Find the small nudges, not the big nudges to, to, to invest in. It's interesting, actually, the, that what you just said reminds me of something you were saying before about networking and, you know, building your network before you need it. And I think that, you know, I, I, talk to a lot of people that, you know, we all, I think at some level kind of all know this, but it's kind of like going to the gym or eating healthy, right? You don't always think about it at the moment and maybe it slides down your to-do list when you've got everything else going on and fires at work and whatnot. You know, they say that the best time to, to plant a tree is 20 years ago and the next best time is right now, you know, as you're looking to, you know, to network. And I think a lot of people listening to this podcast might be thinking about networking, you know, within you know, the framework of their career and finding their next role. And, you know, I guess for those of, for those of them who, you know, might be in that second bucket of planting their trees today rather than 20 years ago, any advice for, as someone who's done so much, you know, cold calling and kind of thinking on their feet, any advice for those folks as they're thinking about maybe building those dormant networking skills, you know, today? It's a good question. So I also think one of the things, if you feel that you've sort of let some of that stuff slide, and obviously there, there is some sensitivity to this if you're at a company and you're maybe starting to think about leaving, but telling as many people that you trust sort of what you're thinking of and starting to use them like, hey, is there anybody that I should talk to, you know, to go back to this second and third degree things? You know, most of the people in like, around me that get sent to me for advice on tech are not people that I know. It's sort of like they were talking to a friend, that friend said, hey, maybe you should go talk to Kelsey. She can give you some advice. And so trying to start to use a network you already have and like bringing them into sort of a little bit where your head is at, obviously understanding that there's some confidentiality around potentially looking for a new job or doing something. But what's, it's sort of like the whole idea of, I said, like you talk to some per person that you really like, you're like, who are three other people that I talk to? Like, because you're never quite sure who people in your network like might be connected to overall. And that starts to get them thinking and then they're like, oh, here's another person I should talk to. Here's another person I should talk to overall. And that's a good way to go to your warm network and tell them what you're thinking and what you're up to. And then that will start to maybe generate inbound people. And then those people are who, then you're like, and then who are the other three? Who are the other three? Because it does start to build on itself. That's great advice. I'm always amazed at how helpful people are as well. Because even when I'm not 
looking for an introduction, if you talk to someone about what you're doing, some, if you have that conversation, there's a lot of serendipity involved where people will say, oh, and I had this recently on the weekend, I was talking about something and someone said, oh, I know someone who sold a business in this area. You should talk to them. I'm like, sure. Okay. You know, and I hadn't asked for a connection. I didn't even know the person existed. And lo and behold, I'm having a conversation with an entrepreneur who sold a business in this space I'm interested in. It's pure serendipity. There's no effort, but I'd love, as Andy says, like, what are the things you've done to be intentional about networking? What are the sort of steps you've taken so that you're not going to someone when you need something, you're actually kind of building that network sort of slightly more methodically? It's a good question. I mean, I'm sitting here pondering it because just, I think generally in life, I've always, you know, I think of the people who have like, here are like the three people that I hang out with type of thing, or like I have a broad group of friends. I think I sort of naturally gravitate towards wanting to know more people, like know more about them. But the reason I say that is that to your point on networking, I think it's just like being curious about like people around you, what are they up to, like what motivates them. Oh, here's what I'm working on type of thing. Like, and then that will start to, that starts to sort of, you know, think like drive. Whereas like, okay, if you're only talking to the same three people every day, especially in a world of work from home, like you're just not having those serendipitous connections. So it's sort of like trying to be curious about the world around you will help you find some of those serendipitous connections. And also, again, to your point, sort of, Sometimes you have to talk to 10 people and then one serendipitous connection comes in. But those nine other people were totally worth it to talk to, to be able to have one of those amazing serendipitous type connections overall. And if I think now, for example, in the world where I'm like looking for a business to buy, some of the most interesting things have come in to me when I went to somebody being like, hey, tell me more about the business. I just like, I'm super fascinated with your business. And they're like, yeah, well, you know, I'm not here, but like, oh, I just heard about this other one. To your point, like you should go talk to them overall. And also trying to be as transparent about what you're looking for, because then people can have really targeted specific leads back to you. Like I want to work in tech at a series B startup in New York City, overall in FinTech. And then what happens is that people kind of remember that. And then, especially if like you've done that with your tight network, they remember that. And then they're like at drinks and they're like, oh, interesting. You work at a fintech startup at Series B. You should go talk to my friend type of thing. Like it's like people glom onto that specificity overall. Like I remember when we were trying to build out some really interesting, we built out really interconnected technology at Venuebook that was very similar to like the, the airline connectivity technology of Sabre, for example. And so I talked to a lot of people at Saber and they were helpful because like I could get down into like really, I would get down into like really detailed connections. Like what do you wish you changed about your business model? Like how would you set it up differently? And like, you know, those guys then made a lot of connections, but that because, because I came in and I was like, tell me if you built this business again, like exactly how you would do a different business model. And they could respond to that better. And they can, you know, it all goes back to the specificity and said like, oh, well, then this person is the one you want to talk to if that's really what you want. Yeah. It's like the, it's the Thursday at one thirty meeting instead of the broad when works for exactly. you. The same principle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess it sounds like you sound when it comes to networking, were you always a natural or is this something you had to work at? Because I know for a lot of folks, 
the, as you say, networking is a dirty word and it's also a fearful word. You know, the idea that you've got to put yourself out there a bit. How have you overcome those fears if you had those fears in the first place? It's a really good question. I'm like pondering. Like you might have to ask my parents and my husband if I just like naturally do this. First off, independent of that, I think it's a skill as you, it's sort of like the 10,000 hours rule. As you start to practice it more, you just get better at it, whether I was inclined to it or not. It's so much part of being an entrepreneur. Like if you're, you just have to, it's like a lot of reps, a lot of reps, a lot of reps. And that's also where it's okay to realize you're going to go in and maybe have some conversations with people and oh, I hate my corporate job. I really want to get a new job. I want to go into tech. And you're going to have some awkward conversations with people where it's like, oh, that didn't quite go as I would have liked. Maybe they were like a little bit curmudgeonly that I was calling them and I clearly wanted a job, but that's actually good feedback. So you're like, maybe I need to go in next time, just go in a little bit more like free form, truly curious type of thing. And so I think first off, just flexing that muscle, no matter what, you're going to get better at it. And it starts to become natural. Even I feel it like, for example, when I took some time off after selling the company, like I didn't do as much of this at all. And now I'm like, oh, I forget how this cascades. Like it starts to like, it starts to be like things in motion stay in motion. But I had to definitely had to be like, oh, wow, I haven't called any of my business contacts like in a year and a half. And I'm like, just catching up with people overall. But it's okay to realize that it's not going to be perfect right away. And you have to be okay with that. But then that's how you get better at it overall, generally, whether you're inclined to it or not, it just gets easier. And I think something you said before too, is a good hack for people who are really getting into this. And I remember when I first heard it, the, the kind of the yes and improv, you know, it helps to be interesting, but you, if you can kind of give people an opportunity to also be interesting, the example, oh, I'm also from Minnesota or something that they can take and, you know, you get better at it as you go, but it makes the process more fun and kind of makes getting those 10,000 reps or 10,000 hours kind of more, more enjoyable as well. Hey, and if you want to practice that now that it's coming back, like all those cold tech meetups and networking, like that is the place to do it. Like, I can't tell you how many of those types of, you know, like Dan, like whether I was good at it or not, Andy, like how do you get the ball rolling? Like just go to a bunch of those events. They're kind of low risk because there's like hundreds of people in a room. But like, if you want to get used to like, wow, I just got to build a connection. I got to like, figure out who's here, but also be genuinely curious. Cause it's there's always like one, one or two really important people at those things. And like, there are like 30 people crowding around and everybody wants to talk to them. And then I'm like, that person doesn't really want to just be harassed. You know, it's like who else around you, like who may work with them that's standing at the bar that nobody's paying attention to. Cause like they didn't check the website type of thing. Like those are actually a really good place to like rep that out. And now they're coming back. Like now that people are kind of over COVID, like I went in, into the city the other day to do tech stars mentoring. Like that was the first time they'd done that in a while in person, for example. Yeah, I definitely, I'm, I'm one of those people who's, who was grateful for COVID for nixing those meetups because <laughs> I, I always found so awkward. I don't know if you heard about the story of Warren Buffett who, you know, he kind of loved to be ensconced in his home in Nebraska in Omaha, Nebraska, because he didn't have to socialize. And sometimes I feel like that because you go into these environments and the worst ones, there would be like 500 people in a bar in New York. And it's like, I don't even know where to start. It's like, who am I going to talk to? It's like the word. Oh yeah. So I quite enjoyed. Full disclosure. I don't also love those, but they're a great place to practice. 
I will say I don't they miss are. those. I don't miss Shock those. therapy. No. But like you can do it. You, you can do it. You adopt Andy's yes then. And, yes and Dan, and if we had the opening exactly. that is your accent, I think we would feel very differently than you do yes. about jumping in mm-hmm. on those. Yeah. yeah <laughs> exactly. See, yeah. you have an automatic yeah. icebreaker. People are like, where are you from? I know, but then, yeah, but I've still got to open my mouth and that's the problem. I've got to speak and that's the hurdle for me to get over. But You know, you can talk about the weather. The weather is always a good icebreaker. People always have an opinion on the weather, you know? Well, right. that's, that's all we talk about in the UK. That's the that's literally the only topic of conversation. But yeah, I do need to get back into that myself. But uh, this has been a fascinating conversation, but we're going to dive into another section. We've got a quick fire section and some questions to ask you. Andy, do you want to... Do you want to yeah. dive in for our so first we're, question? So we're going we're gonna to ask these same four questions to everyone. So, uh, so if you're ready for a rapid fire, first off, how do you define success? It's a really good question. First off, I think success means different things to different people overall. But obviously, like a lot of people think of success as financial rewards. And yes, that is something that comes from success. But I also think if you're trying to hit a really big goal, success can be much smaller milestones. I think like deep down, where probably like I feel most successful is like if I'm chipping away towards a really big goal overall. Because like, yes, there's that like 10 years down the line, like a menu book for 10 years, it was acquired. It was great. But like to keep going for those 10 years was like, wow, we got that product out. We got like you did something that you felt like had impact overall on yourself and other people and customers generally, because like that can be defined in a lot of different ways type of thing. Like success could be like cheering up the friend to in this very interesting economic environment might be like worried about getting laid off type of thing and like that's something that people don't want to talk about it i think it's it i think of it as like feeling like you've made an impact on something towards like a bigger goal and project because i think creating just one measure as you know it's always the psychological term like every time your wealth goes up like it gets reset you have to define it in a different way to like truly appreciate it raw but i also think sometimes like it, everybody especially type a people like me i'm like oh i gotta you still have to the reason it's better to do it that way, because even I sometimes I'm like, well, I want to do this now. I got to do this now. I got to do this now. You know, type of thing. Like it's easy to get caught in that little hamster wheel overall if you don't bring it back down to like what is like truly important day to day. Makes a lot of sense. What would you tell yourself from 10 years ago to avoid given what you know now? So one of my first things that is interesting that I always tell every startup that I advise. So it's so good to raise money and have money in the bank, do it correctly, but always have to make every decision. Like you don't have all the money in the world because money doesn't solve. There are certain things that money can't solve. It can't solve poor product market fit. It can't solve bad unit economics. It can't solve like unscalable. Yes, you should do some unscalable things that eventually become scalable, but it can't solve something that's just like always never going to be scalable. And the reason I say that is that like I became a much better CEO and operator as I started thinking much more about like what is going to drive the biggest impact independent of 
of money. You know what I mean? We're seeing this right now in Silicon Valley. Like, did you really need that fancy office? Did you really need like that fancy food type of thing? Or did you maybe want to build it on a different culture overall? Because it's so easy. And it goes back to the psychology thing of success. It's, it's like, once you're like, wow, I'm flying everywhere around the world. I travel all the time. Ugh, I can't believe I'm not flying first class everywhere. Type of thing. It's you need to remember and like reset yourself. And I think that's really important as you're a tech entrepreneur is like, think about like what's going to drive impact and like almost separate it from the money. Because like, like, yes, you want to throw money at things that are worth fixing, but don't just throw money at things because you have money to throw is the way I see it. What's the biggest thing that people don't understand about being a founder? It's a good question. My initial instinct is that they don't understand how lonely it is. It's, you don't have a boss. You just don't have a boss and you don't have a, you don't have like somebody to look and be like, Hey, how did you do this overall? And it's both invigorating that you don't have a boss, but it's also, you just have to go develop. You, you kind of asked me like, what about a network? I think you just have to develop a network as a founder. Cause you're like, wow, I need somebody to talk to who has seen these crazy things that I have seen. And it's totally normal in any average day is that it's a little bit of a the world thinks you're crazy you kind of at times think you're crazy like you're like I'm never going to be able to figure like I'm not I don't have enough money in the bank like you know how are we going to do it this with this team and you can do amazing things but I think sometimes you need other people around you because you just don't like you can't go ask your like when you're like 30 employees and you're doubting your strategy, you can't go ask your junior customer service person. I mean, hey, you want their feedback, but like you have to go ask somebody that's trusted that's outside the company because you don't necessarily have that ability to do it within your built-in situation within the company overall. I don't know. I'm curious to know what you guys think about that. Well, when been... we're on your podcast, I'll answer all these questions. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you guys don't know about me. I'm such a, I'm like, I'm such a social media light. I'm on social media, but I'm not a social media poster. Like people have asked me if I've made a conscious decision not to post on social media. I was like, no, I'm just a social media stalker. I don't post, right? So, <laughs> consumer. I'm yeah. a consumer, yeah. right? That's nicer than saying with that. I'm a stalker. I appreciate yeah, that. A, yeah, yeah. The technical term. What one thing do you strongly believe that most successful people do not? I know I said that you put yourself in the place to be lucky a lot, and that's important. But and most people who've been really successful have worked really hard, have have ground, and you know have done a lot of things. Like they've taken risks, they've done that. But I also believe that. In some things in life, there is just some inherent good timing, luck, right place, right time. And I do think luck does favor the prepared mind, but there are times where that can, you know, lead to success overall, generally. And, you know, to the point, sometimes that also means maybe you should capitalize on that as a business owner. I mean, like I'm spending a lot of time in the franchise space right now, and I had a, a franchise expert tell me, like, I know this sounds crazy, but like, if you have a really hot concept, you want to be number two because like number two is just going to go with number one because like number one is going to be so great. Somebody else doesn't want to invest in number one and somebody missed out on that opportunity. So you can have a really good business by doing it that way. And I bring that up to say, I think ignoring sometimes how external factors do sometimes impact 
you, that can lead to success in certain areas. And I do think though, on the flip side, the most successful people anticipate those and try to understand those and work through those because ignoring them is not necessarily a realistic operating plan is the way I see it. Yep. Awesome. Cool. Not to mean to be a jaded, I'm not a jaded person, but I do think sometimes it just pays to be right place, right time. Yeah. There's an old saying, better to be lucky than good, right? I think that can Completely. be- Hey, that, we made a decision to move right? out of New York City and like secured where we were going to live the first week of March, 2020. Like people are like, how did you know? I was like, I did not know. I mean, how would I have known? Like literally I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, but recognizing that is half the battle. (laughs) Yeah. Timing is everything, Mm -hmm. but some awesome insights here very quickly. Any, are there any blogs, books, or podcasts that you like and would want to share with our audience? Anything you'd recommend? Oh, that's a good question. So first off, I know this is a really techie group. So I have a feeling you probably know a lot about just general tech blogs. One of the things I've actually started following, so I do still listen to all the tech blogs, like the A16Z podcast, a lot of that. But there are a lot of really interesting podcasts that are around sort of more scrappy entrepreneurship different types of businesses beyond tech. And the reason I bring that up is that if people are motivated to go into tech and entrepreneurship because they want something different, I found it's just good to test, help me test my thinking even of like, oh, hey, maybe I do love software more. And these are people that are like, hey, I built a self-storage empire. I built a, like I built the, you know, there was a, I was listening to one of these podcasts the other day and it was like the people who just like sold who like started making N95 masks right as COVID hit and then like sold so many N95 masks they never have to work again type of thing. And I'm laughing because I have to look them up on my phone to tell you what they are. So I don't, but I love on the tech side, A16Z. I, one of my favorite though, non-tech ones, I love the Freakonomics podcast because it always just has weird stories on it. But one is called The Sweaty Startup by Nick Huber. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. And the other one is my first million. And and the reason I bring that up is like, it's the tech world. It's a little harder to get a job right now. And I think people are drawn to the tech world because of the freedom and the flexibility. And I put those out there as like, you know, think more broadly about what you want. It goes back to that when you say wave a magic wand, like if you don't have a really good answer, like think like deeply around like, what is it you want to do day to day? Because also realizing there's not just one path there. And that's where I found those podcasts are really interesting. Overall, it goes back to how we started when I said, like, I'm going to be like the queen of residential trash services in Rye. And that's going to be amazing. And hey, if I need an opener at like one of these like startup networking events, I will have my opener, right? Like people are going to be like, I don't even know what to do with you type of thing. That's a ready-made Twitter handle, the Queen of Trash. Exactly. There's a guy they call the, the strip mall guy who I do either consume or stalk. You can depends which way you look at it. Who's also you know same kind of thing, but going after these relatively unsexy areas that people don't understand or don't know about and publicizing what they're doing is fascinating. Is there any way you want to share contact details, a web page, social, email, or anything? Any, how can people get in touch with you if they want to ask you follow-up questions? LinkedIn is always a great place to find me generally because I do spend a lot of time on LinkedIn to my point around networking. 
And they could also, I do finally have a website for my group LLC that is willowgrandllc.com. Or you can just reach me at Kelsey at Willowgrand overall. We'll put these in the show notes so, so listeners can find them easily later. They can judge the quality of the HubSpot website that I built myself, right? That's yep. real-time feeds. Work. Exactly. <laughs> I would like it. If anybody wants to make it look better, I put it up in like half a day. A teardown. A teardown yes. of your website. But this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. I think there's so much richness in this conversation as always. And it's been great having you on. Thanks, Kelsey. Well, thanks for having me, guys. And that's a wrap on this week's episode of Adventures in Growth. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you were able to find some inspiration for your own journey. You can subscribe to our newsletter to receive fresh weekly content that deconstructs success in tech leadership by heading over to adventuresingrowth.co. Until next time, go have an adventure.